Good evening, everyone. You're very welcome to the forum. My name is Beth Hannan, and I'm the director of the forum. Uh, thanks for coming out on such a drab evening when maybe you want to be tucked up in bed, fast asleep, but instead of being asleep, we're going to talk about sleep um, <laughs> with our brilliant panel here tonight. Um, the Forum is an educational uh, non-profit organisation. What we do is we get all sorts of interesting people together on the stage like this to cast a philosophical eye over matters of interest and importance. We cover topics from science, politics, arts and culture. And we've been doing this for over 20 years. So if you visit our website, you'll find a huge archive of podcasts that you can subscribe to. Uh, or you can come along to our events. They happen once a week, all the way through term. Um, and the reason we're able to do this is because of incredibly generous people like yourselves uh, who donate to us to keep us going. Uh, if you would like to uh, help us on our mission to bring philosophy to a wider audience, uh, you can, for the price of a cup of coffee, support us by texting Phil18 and suggested donation of £3 to the number that's up there. And uh, uh, thank you in advance for those of you who do that. Um, just a couple of housekeeping issues. Uh, this is being recorded for a podcast, uh, so if you ask a question uh, during the talk, do be aware that your voice is going to be recorded and put out into the internet forevermore. Uh, and uh, wait for the microphone to find you so that the podcast does pick up your voice. Um, if you have a mobile phone, do turn off the volume, um, but you don't need to turn off your phone completely. In fact, I encourage you to join the conversation on Twitter. We have our very own hashtag, LSE Forum. Um, so um, maybe I'll see some of you, some of you there. Um, and for those of you who are interested in, in Marina's new book, Insomnia, I'm delighted to say that its very first um, uh, appearance in public in the wild is here tonight, and Marina will be signing copies after the event if you're interested in buying it. Anyway, that's more than enough from me. Let, you, let me hand you over to our far more interesting panel for tonight. Thanks. Thank you, Beth. Hi, I'm Shahida Bari. I'm your chair and one of the fellows of the forum. I think it's really hilarious that we're asking you to um, support the charity for the price of a cup of coffee to people who are possibly insomniacs. We shouldn't be encouraging you to drink coffee. Um, support the forum instead. That seems the obvious solution. Um, this event is on sleep. Um, we are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with a sleep, um, but is it? With apparently two-thirds of Britons suffering from sleep problems, this forum event promises to be your wake-up call, exploring the science, philosophy, and literature of sleep. Philosophers have diligently examined consciousness, but what do they have to say about our nightly loss of consciousness? And I, I, I pitched this event um, slightly tired of um, all the talk of mindfulness, and it occurred to me that we could talk about mindlessness, um, but not with mindless speakers, brilliant speakers, in fact. So first of all, Marina, Marina Benjamin, she's a senior editor of the brilliant online philosophical magazine, Aeon, and the author of The Middle Pause, and most recently, of course, Insomnia, which is still hot off the press. It's not released until November, is that right, Marina? Um, it's in bookshops at the end of October. End of October, yeah. So you could sneak a copy in and Marina be around afterwards to sign to uh, Professor Russell Foster. He's a professor of circadian neuroscience, the director of the Nuffield Laboratory of Ophthalmology and the head of Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute. 
Um, I sense we might have some sleepless people here, so we might have an impromptu queue for consultations at the end of this. I you might, have, might fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> no fear of that. Um, and Simon Wergen Morgan, also a professor, a professor in humanities at Kingston University, and his book, The Poetics of Sleep, from Aristotle to Nancy, uh, was published by Bloomsbury in 2013. Um, and he self-identifies as a poor sleeper, I think. In fact, I was going to start with us there, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I think you know the format, I'm going to fiercely interrogate our panellists, I'll get them to talk to each other, and we'll open up to the floor as soon as possible. But before we start, I thought you could warm us all up by um, disclosing how many hours sleep you got last night. Marina, what about you? I didn't count, but it was a good night, um, because I took a pill. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> That's promising, maybe, for... I'm not sure. <laughs> Actually, maybe Russell will be able to throw light on this later because I don't think sleep, taking a sleeping pill is not proper sleep. It's more like being comatose. It's more it's like sedation. anesthetic. Yeah. It's more like what would happen if you took an anesthetic. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, we'll be de- anesthetizing with alcohol later, so maybe that will give you a good night's sleep too. Uh, Simon, what about you? Yeah, I was going to say the glass of wine rather than, <laughs> rather than the pill. Um, I wouldn't say I'm an insomniac, but my, my wife always describes me as a bulimic sleeper, which means I fall asleep far too early and gobble down as much sleep as possible, <laughs> then throw it all up at 2 o'clock in the morning. So that's my kind of regular sleep pattern. That sounds suitably disgusting. <laughs> and you, Russell? Um, I slept extremely well last night, but Friday night was a disaster. Oh. Um, and I, Therefore, on Saturday, I was grumpy. I locked myself out of the house. Okay. I was just not a very pleasant person. So okay. uh, I won't explain why I slept bad, bad oh. on Friday, but I didn't. Okay. Well. I feel like we should try and get to the bottom of that <laughs> over the course of the talk. Um, I slept really well. Because uh, my husband's away, and I've got a super king-sized bed to myself, and that seems to make all the difference. Um, I'm going to start with you, Russell, because I want to start with the science, um, because I think that human beings have been around a long time, and uh, most of us, if we're lucky, we get to spend a great proportion of our lives sleeping. But is sleep still elusive to science? Have scientists got better at making sense of what sleep is, or are there still parts of it that are mysterious to us? There are still parts that are mysterious, lots of it. But what's, what's really happened over the past 20 years or so is we've moved from phenomenology and, well, you know, it's, a, it's apparent dead time to a real understanding of all the important biology going on within the brain uh, whilst we're asleep. And, and the point I'll make with a few slides I'll show in a moment is that essentially our waking day is defined by what's going on, uh, orchestrated by the brain whilst we're asleep. Okay, um, so what, I'm, I'm quite tempted by these slides. I'm, they're not the kinds of slides that are going to put us to sleep. But I'm assuming the slides come because you have to talk to a great many people about their sleep hygiene and about how to improve their sleep. There's that, but also what I want to get across is some of the fundamental biology of sleep and what we've learned and why it's so complicated and why this complexity makes it vulnerable to disruption. Why don't you tell us what we've learned? Oh, what, now? Yeah, All right, then. I, will, I will go to, to the slides. Thank you. Well, I'd just like to say what a, what a delight and pleasure it is uh, to be here. Um, so, as we heard, um, 36% of our lives, on average, will be spent asleep. And yet, despite that pr- prodigious amount of time spent asleep, we have, as a society since the Industrial Age, um, essentially ignored it. With the invasion of the night as a result of electric light and everything else, we've essentially thought that sleep is for wimps, and it provides no biological purpose whatsoever. 
So the first sort of bit of the discussion is, is some... These are six uh, areas here where we know that sleep is absolutely crucial. So for growth and repair, the brain is orchestrating the repair mechanisms, the cellular division mechanisms that, that allow us to, to function appropriately. We do a lot of emotional processing. Some of the information that we're coming in, that's coming in during the day uh, and what we retain and what we forget is defined by states of sleep. So, for example, tired people will remember the bad stuff but forget the good stuff. It's really fascinating. The removal of waste products, some really interesting work has emerged there, showing that um, the clearance of certain toxins, like beta amyloid, you know, these misfolded proteins that are associated with dementia and Alzheimer's, well, whilst we're asleep, they're packaged up and cleared. And it's been shown fairly recently by a Dutch group that in individuals who show sleep deprivation, there are higher levels of beta amyloid within the cerebral spinal fluid. Um, replacing energy reserves, we expend them during the day, and they're rebuilt during the night. Developing memories and information processing is absolutely critical whilst we sleep. And I just want to show you one bit of data about uh, processing of information. This is a study by Jan Born's group, and he developed a cognitive task, and he asked this group here to um, look at the task... Uh, become familiar with the task, but then perform the task that afternoon. And about 20% of the group um, solved the problem. The second group were made familiar with the task in the morning and then performed it the following day, the following afternoon, but they were deprived of sleep. So again, about 20% got it. But this is the most fascinating group. The third group were introduced to the task in the morning, performed it the following day after a full night of sleep, and 60% solve the problem. Oh. So sleep promotes the ability to come up with novel solutions to complex and novel tasks. And this is a beautiful bit of data by Jan and, and showing you know, one of the fundamentally uh, important areas of sleep. So we've talked about some of these um, areas that are going up, these, these, these domains that are critical whilst we're asleep. And I suppose in view of the important processes going on, the amount of time spent, it's no great surprise that the generation of the sleep-wake cycle involves an interaction of all the key neurotransmitter systems within the brain and multiple brain structures, masses of stuff going on in the hindbrain, the hypothalamus, the basal brain, the midbrain, and the cortex. All these structures are interacting. And so sleep and the sleep-wake cycle is very much a global brain activity. And as we've seen, so much of, of what defines our ability to function during the day is as a result of processes going on within the brain at night. Now, this complex situation involving all those brain structures and neurotransmitters is made even more complicated because of key regulators. There's the biological clock or the circadian system, and there's an anatomical structure within the hypothalamus called the suprachiasmatic nuclei, and that essentially says now is the appropriate time to be awake and now is the appropriate time to be asleep. If that structure is damaged, then the beautiful timing of sleep-wake falls apart completely. The internal clock is then set to the external world by detection of the dawn-dusk cycle, the light-dark cycle, by the eye. If you have no eyes, then the clock will drift through time, and we're studying individuals who have massive visual loss. Classic mismatch between internal time and the external world is jet lag. You get over jet lag basically as a result of exposure to the light-dark cycle. 
That's one part of the timer. The second timer is perhaps the most intuitive part of sleep, essentially sleep pressure. The longer you've been awake, the greater the need for sleep, the greater the sleep pressure. And these two systems interact in the following way. I think we've lost a little bit of the bottom of the slide. But essentially what happens is from the moment we wake, the sleep pressure builds, and whilst we're asleep, the sleep pressure dissipates. But here is where we are now, massive sleep pressure, but I, I notice nobody's actually fallen asleep yet, and that's because the biological clock is counteracting it. Essentially, from the moment we wake up in the morning, we, yeah, here we go, we see a little bit of drive for wakefulness for the clock, but essentially that keeps pace with this rise in sleepiness. So now you're not falling asleep because the clock is saying, no, no, this is not the time to fall asleep. But as we approach sleep, the wakefulness drive decreases whilst, and we fall asleep. Whilst we're asleep, the wakefulness, you can't see this, it's at the bottom of these slides. The wakefulness drive uh, is very low, but as we approach morning and wake time, the wakefulness drive kicks in and we wake up at about this point here. And what's critical is that the homeostatic drive, the sleep drive, and the circadian drive are beautifully aligned. And this is what gets completely mixed up in night shift workers or jet lag or, or, or whatever. It's further complicated in us because of societal <laughs> pressures. The alarm clock is this incredible driver that is dictating when we wake up uh, in, in the morning, forced out of bed, and that distorts all of these uh, biological systems that we've been talking about. And it can be further distorted by things like caffeine. Caffeine in coffee blocks the receptors within the brain that detect the sleep pressure. So you can genuinely feel more awake, but essentially you're masking that, that important sleep drive. The point I've tried to make in these few slides here is that you have immense complexity, and that immense complexity means you're, in, you're very vulnerable to disruption. And the sorts of disruption that we see fit into three broad domains. There's the sort of thing that you find with short-term sleep disruption that we've all experienced, loss of attention, um, high levels of microsleeps, 100,000 crashes on the American motorway system uh, are attributed to people falling asleep at the wheel every year. The failure to process information, uh, absolutely classic. You're getting the information, but you can't actually pro process it appropriately. Impulsivity, you're going to make that red traffic light. You, you don't. Um, loss of empathy, the failure to pick up those social signals in others, uh, and very much a negative focus uh, on the world. Memory impairment, increased mistakes, reduced cognition and creativity. And this kicks in with relatively little sleep disruption, the sort of thing that many people are getting uh, every, every day. The sort of thing that you get with longer-term sleep disruption, as in night shift workers, for example, has, be beyond the sort of the brain effects, a, a major effect upon health and well-being. So there's evidence of immune suppression, which may sort of predispose to increase infection rates and cancer rates. A classic study on Danish nurses showing long-term night shift workers, Danish night, night shift um, uh, nurses, had higher rates of colorectal cancer and breast cancer. Increased cardiovascular disease, risk of diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and increased stimulant and sedative use. So... Oh, and, and mental illness, so those individuals who are vulnerable to mental health problems, um, so for example, mood instability, greatly exacerbated by sleep disruption, hallucinatory experiences, um, paranoia, 
um, and anxiety is exacerbated by sleep disruption. And indeed, if you're vulnerable to bipolar or schizophrenia, again, the, those, the, 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 the experiences that you have are made worse uh, as a result of sleep disruption. So there's a very important link with mental illness. So what can we do now on the basis of the science we know to increase, uh, to reduce the risk in the workplace? Well, there's six examples here. You could chronotype individuals. So there are genuinely morning types and evening types, and we can discuss why. So it makes an awful lot of sense to have the morning types on the morning shifts and the evening types on the evening shifts. Because if, an, if, you're doing the evening sh uh, if you're an evening person doing the morning shift, you're much more susceptible to some of the problems we talked about. High frequency health checks. If you're more vulnerable to metabolic problems, such as diabetes 2 or obesity, then why haven't we instituted higher frequency health checks in those individuals who are vulnerable. And I think there's a duty of care here by an employer. The correct lighting. Many of us are light-deprived. Classic study looked at levels of light in the nursing home. And by stabilizing and increasing the light-dark cycle in the nursing home, individuals showed far better sleep and their cognitive decline was significantly reduced. Um, technology to help vigilance. There was a paper published last year showing that 57% of junior doctors who were um, coming home from the night shift had either had a crash or a near miss. That's 57%. So why aren't we giving those individuals devices that clip onto the dashboard, monitor eye roll, and let you know if you're falling asleep? Appropriate nutrition. If you look at what's available to night shift workers, high fat, high sugar. This is the worst possible food we could providing uh, to individuals vulnerable to diabetes 2, uh, obesity, and all the rest of it. And then sleep education, essentially informing everybody through society, whether it be teenagers, the elderly, you and I, uh, that, that sleep needs to be prioritized. And there are lots of things we can do uh, about, uh, about improving our sleep through changes in behavior. Uh, there's also something on the bottom here, which is care with the use of digital <laughs> devices. Um, oh, That's oh, wonderful. Gosh. Um, swaying and again, something that we might want to talk about <laughs> is that so. some of the sleep apps that are available to individuals are not particularly good, and they can be very misleading. And so I think we need to be very careful about how we respond to the information that those devices give us. Thank that's you. It. Thank Gosh, you. that's marvellous, isn't it? I feel like... Um, I feel like I got a whirlwind sleep education and I could pass my sleep GCSE. Um, I do want to ask you a question before I, I move on to, to Simon. Um, and that is, it feels like that, that great advances have been made, but is there one thing that you would like to know about sleep that we haven't yet figured out? Well, yes. I mean, one of the big questions is, what's the point of slow-wave sleep versus REM sleep? As, as many of you will be aware, there are these different stages of sleep, and we've described them for the past 50 or 60 years. But we still really don't understand the purpose of slow-wave sleep versus REM sleep. We have some pretty good ideas, but we really don't know some of the major architectural features. You know, what do you sleep. think it is? What do you, what's your well, theory? I think the consensus would be that slow-wave sleep is probably memory consolidation and the processing of information, Whereas REM sleep seems to, seems to be associated with um, a, a, the processing of emotional uh, uh, information. And indeed, that's when we dream most vividly. The problem is that REM sleep is you're almost awake anyway. Right. So waking somebody up, you know, because you can bring people into the lab and you can find out what stage of sleep they're in. You wake them up and they say, well, what's going on? What did you, yeah. Were you dreaming? Now, um, 
that's easy with REM sleep because they're almost awake anyway, so they can easily report their experiences. Slow-wave sleep, you're so deep, it may well be in the time you've been woken up to full consciousness, the dreams that you were having have just been lost into, into the ether. Will we ever know? Is that a question that oh, we'll never oh, be able to oh, answer? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this has oh, never yeah. been more a more exciting time to be a neuroscientist because many of those big questions are now being addressed. Um, through um, work with our clinical... There's an incredible change in the past 15, 20 years where clinical scientists and basic scientists like myself are working together to address these really exciting and fundamental questions. That's wonderful. Um, The scientists are getting the hang of it, Simon. Let's see how the philosophers have fared. Um, I thought that this would be a really good forum event because sleep seems so paradoxical to philosophy, Um, philosophy which so often wants to awaken us. Um, it's the opposite of thinking, perhaps, sleep. Um, and yet, when we are tussling with the hardest problems, we say, let's sleep on it. Um, so give me a, thumb, a thumbnail sketch of how sleep has been understood by the key philosophers. Well, well you're absolutely right that philosophy, kind of classically speaking, um, invests heavily in notions of rational thought and takes consciousness as its proper object of study and, and discussion. Um, and in that sense... It seems as though sleep is something that is not properly philosophical, either as a, as a topic for discussion or not proper within the ambit of philosophy in general. I mean, to philosophize, one would think one needs to be awake. So if you look at um, the history of philosophy through, and I'm going to pick out just four philosophers, um, if you look through the his- history of philosophy where philosophy talks about sleep and it does that much more than we might have thought, what you find is actually quite a divided and anguished relationship to sleep. So, for example, if you look in in Plato, a kind of classical father figure of philosophy, um, and you look in Plato's laws, there's a commentary there on sleep, which, tellingly enough, is not all that philosophical. Okay, so Plato talks about sleep but doesn't afford it the dignity of a proper philosophical discourse. And he's rather dismissive about sleep. He says that um, sleep should be proportionate, it should be curtailed, in fact, it should be minimised, that the, the citizen of the polis should... Um, sleep in a moderate way, Um, they should sleep less than their servants, be awake before them and awake after them, so that the proper uh, protocols of the household uh, should be observed by minimising sleep at its head. And that gives rise to an analogy between the household and the state. There's a sense um, in in Plato's text that um, if we oversleep, the state itself is subject to some... Uh, kind of unplaceable threat that we need vigilance, surveillance, and this is the proper behaviour of the citizenry in general. So on the one hand in Plato you have, if you like, the dismissal or marginalisation of sleep. Sleep is something just physiological. It's beneath the philosophical grandeur of, of philosophy. But on the other hand, tellingly, there's a darker side. It's also menacing and threatening because there's something there that one should be vigilant about. If you jump forward to the Enlightenment and you think about the great Enlightenment philosopher Immanuel Kant, Kant also is rather dismissive of sleep and he wants to attribute to it more or less a purely physiological uh, status in one sense. So sleep is just for uh, relaxation and the gathering together of powers for waking life. Um, But at the same time in Kant too there's something threatening something fearful about sleep which elevates it above this merely physiological uh, phenomenon. Kant says that one dreams in order to wake oneself up from sleep because otherwise otherwise sleep in a permanent state um, uh, is nothing other than death. 
So somehow or other, sleep moves from a purely functional support or facilitator of life to something that threatens death. Um, and actually, um, uh, what that means is that there's a kind of return of the repressed in that line of philosophical thinking, where sleep is sidelined, it's excluded, it's placed outside of philosophy, but somehow or other it comes back to trouble the philosophical imagination. If you turn to Plato's um, very famous student, Aristotle, Aristotle talks about sleep actually rather differently. Um, Aristotle is looking at what constitutes, um, in our translated sense, sense perception, which is actually not in Aristotle quite the same thing that we might mean in philosophy, let alone in science, when we talk about consciousness. But Aristotle talks about sense perception, and it's a quite complicated argument, but what he says is that um, sense perception doesn't fall on the side, side of wakefulness. Instead of sleep, it organises the distinction between the two. And from that argument, you get the idea that, in fact, um, sense perception in animal life, and most particularly in human life, comes from the capacity to sleep. Plants are not sensate because they do not sleep, says Aristotle. Now, that places sleep not outside the realm of human consciousness, outside the dignity of philosophy. It actually places sleep right at the origin of what constitutes the human in Aristotle. That's a very different thing from Plato. And if you move forward into the 20th century and look at the philosophy of uh, someone like Emmanuel Levinas, Levinas, in talking about existence in general, and this is after the Second World War, during a period where Levinas has been um, uh, incarcerated in a concentration camp, Levinas gives a very bleak view of existence. Existence in its impersonal sense is unremitting. So he talks about the ilia, um, complicated <laughs> kind of term. It basically means the there is. Um, and he uses propositions like, you know, uh, it is raining, it is hot, to sort of convey the sense of an impersonal existence, which kind of never comes to an end. He talks about it in terms of an absolute vigilance. Existence never sleeps. So for Levinas, in trying to understand what makes the human stand out from this impersonal realm of existence, talks about the human existence as someone who is able to break with that unremitting, impersonal vigilance of the there is. In other words, to be human, again, one must sleep. One must be able to punctuate, break with, blink, if you like, in relation to that unremittingness. And there again, you have this idea in Levinas, all the way down the centuries from Aristotle, that it's actually sleep that makes you human. Now, that's very, very interesting, I think. And, and one last thing I would say is about the 20th century um, and its uh, ideas about sleeping and wakefulness. And I guess you'd expect me to go to Freud, but I'm going to go to a, a French philosopher called Henri Bergson, because Bergson gives a very interesting definition, I think, of sleep and dreaming. He says, dreaming is the entire mental life minus the effort of concentration. The entire mental life minus the effort of concentration. Now, before the 20th century, I guess, you would think of sleep as a kind of numbing or dulling of the senses. Bergson says something very different. He says, actually, um, we're kind of closed down a little bit when we're awake. It's sleep and dreaming that opens us up. And you suddenly have the whole conversation flip around, where we're more awake when we're asleep than we are when we're awake, we're half asleep when we're awake compared to when we're asleep. And certainly, 
I would use that as a context in which you could think about Freud and how Freud really flips the relationship between wakefulness and sleep in terms of um, the sheer vitality of, of the sleeping mind. I don't know if I'm sleeping or waking now. I feel quite dazzled by that. Um, I want to ask you about... Um, well, in your research for the, this book on uh, the poetics of sleep, did you have to research the sleeping habits of philosophers? Did they have peculiar sleeping habits? Do you know, I, I don't think I did. It's very interesting how many philosophers will say um, sleep is something I can set to one side um, because philosophy is, is about wakefulness. Certainly, Kant is very, very dismissive about um, uh, undue sleeping in, um, uh, in, in the text that I write about in the book. He makes a comparison with what he calls a particular um, uh, Islamic strain of thought, which says that um, if you eat too much too quickly, gluttony, there's only so much food you can eat in a lifetime, and then you will die. And Kant makes the same observation about sleep. You sleep too much, you die early. Yeah. So there is this kind of commitment to a sort of vigilant wakefulness in philosophy which gives, gives thought its kind of grandeur. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I'd love to see that Venn diagram of those abstemious, ascetic thinkers who were sleepers, I'm too good for <laughs> sleep, and those lazy, indolent ones and they're writing <laughs> in their pyjamas at you know, 12 at yeah, midday yeah, or sure. whatever. Um, but Marina's been nodding vigorously yeah, throughout. I'm really curious to ask um, Simon a question about how that whole idea of... Um, you know, sleep meaning vigilance kind of became maybe around the time of, I don't know, you could know better than me, 16th, 17th century, this idea of lassitude and moral lassitude in particular. So people who slept too much were somehow, in the same way that people, sometimes obesity is treated today, a moral failing. If you slept too much, there was something morally wrong with you. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's certainly something that you, you find um, becoming more and more pronounced through, the, uh, let alone in philosophy, through the cultural history of the 18th, 19th and, and 20th centuries. I think that's absolutely right. It's very interesting that we now live in a kind of 24-7 society. There's kind of sleep research on uh, kind of the politics of sleep and, uh, you know, the social phenomena of a 24-7 society where, in practical terms, it's becoming harder and harder to sleep and um, it's interesting that that might give us a context in which to question that philosophical commitment through the ages to a kind of um, uh, in almost interminable vigilance. There's a very interesting book from the um, late 70s which kicks off Poetics of Sleep which is by this guy called Ray Medis and if you're in the audience Ray I'm very very sorry <laughs> called The Sleep Instinct where Ray says um, uh, sleep is, a, is a, an evolutionary hangover, and this may well be part true, you can, you can tell me, an evolutionary hangover from the days when, when you weren't hunting or whatever it was you were doing, you had to go hide someplace and, and, and be very, very kind of quiet and still, and that was the best thing for you to do. We don't need to do that anymore. We've evolved. That's fine. We should all stop sleeping so much. And, and Ray says there should be brain operations or, you know, he tries to <laughs> hunt out what he calls asomniacs. Um, so he spends a lot of time hanging out with people who call radio shows late at night or <laughs> old people who stay up knitting or there's one guy who, who, who doesn't sleep for, I don't think, about six or seven days and starts wrestling with an imaginary gorilla. <laughs> and you wonder about Ray's social life at this point. But anyway, um, he never quite finds the asomniac he's looking for. Um, and it's a very interesting idea that it's almost the culmination of that philosophical dismissal of sleep that gives you that desire to find 
uh, the asomniac who never sleeps. Um, and it's an interesting idea for our society now, the idea that that would be, you know, something to aspire to. <laughs> um, uh, I, I was going to comment on the fact that um, the, the pre-industrial view of sleep, and, and you started with a, with a Shakespeare. Um, so much of the of the plays and the sonnets of Shakespeare, the honey-heavy dew of slumber, mm-hmm. it was absolutely embraced. But with the ability to invade the night, our whole attitudes changed. I mean, sleep was the first victim because we yeah. could, as a society, we had to justify, in a sense, why we have. And so Edison, I think, encapsulated, which is, which is um, sleep is a criminal waste of time and a throwback to our cave days. Um, and that's, there's almost that sharp distinction between the two. Um, just fascinating. Plato, I mean, I will stop you, but, but Plato, in that text I began with, says, um, and this is obviously a translation, but asleep a man is useless, he may as well be dead. Mm. And there's a double resonance to that idea. I mean, it's quite scary, right? You sleep too much, you die. Yeah. Um, so it's not just about the uselessness of sleep, it's quite a terrifying image. I love the point that you made that why philosophers have ignored sleep so much, because philosophy is consciousness. Sleep, by definition, is not consciousness, therefore I can ignore it. <laughs> Until you get to Bergson, who says, yeah. that's where it's at, baby. Yeah. You know? it's, yeah. it's the entire mental yeah. life, minus the effort of concentration. Yeah. How exciting is Meanwhile, that? the scientists are always saying, hang on, you better get some sleep so you can think straight, guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. wonderful. Um, let's move on to Marina. Um, because well, Marina has this great book, Insomnia, which I know you're all going to go and buy. Um, and in that, you say that that book attests to your love-hate relationship, a love-hate relationship with insomnia. Um, and you say in that book, that book is a deliberate attempt to linger in a state of sleeplessness and record your sense of the world in that condition at that godforsaken time of the morning. And I wondered... If in the end you, you think that the sleepless sense of the world that you were cultivating in the writing of that book was a truer sense of the world? I think that's a wonderful question, and I'm going to take the, the scenic route <laughs> to, to answer <laughs> it. it. Um, so I'll, I'll just start by saying why I thought it was a challenge and an interesting challenge to write about insomnia, to write a whole book about not sleeping. Um, and it seemed to me there wasn't, there wasn't very much about not sleeping. I mean, there's a little bit in poetry, there, but there's not very much in prose about what it's like not to sleep, to have your whole existence determined by a craving, a chasing, an endless, lasting yearning after something you don't get. And also this thing that you don't get is also the thing that most people take absolutely for granted, like breathing or producing hormones. So what was it like to, to not have this thing? Um, and... You know, there is a sense in which, I mean, you know, you talk to other insomniacs. I don't know how many, of the pe- how many people in this audience would call themselves insomniac. Curious. Oh, really? Not very many. That's quite interesting. Not so many. Okay, well, then you can nod if you agree with me. <laughs> Some of them might be too tired to put their hand up. <laughs> too tired. <laughs> <laughs> so I was very interested to stay in this kind of strange state of mind that that afflicted me when I was sleepless, a state of kind of uncertainty and ambiguity and a kind of, not not necessarily kind of a cognitive certainty, something kind of veiled, if you like, and and to write from that position. And, um, And so I ended up writing something kind of that mimic the insomnia condition, so parts of it feel very urgent and fevered and full of anxiety, and other parts of the book are quite, quite dreamlike. 
Um, and I also wrote in a fragmented way because I was trying to imitate or at least mirror the way that the mind, when it's wakeful at night, skips inattentively from one thing to the next. So that was something that, that I was very interested in. So to, to come round to Shahida's question, um, is there a truer kind of knowing in wakefulness when you're awake in, in the dark, which is a kind of trespass, isn't it? It's a contamination of, of day into night. Um, is there something that secret, intuitive knowing that you arrive at? And I would kind of say yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that I think you do catch unexpectedly profound ideas from the wisps of a dream or have these kind of true longings that reveal themselves to you at night because they're, they're kind of unearthed from the, the repressed stores. But then, you know, you also do have that kind of, um, you know, the cognitively impaired aspect of that insomniac wakefulness where you're very aware that reality is, is not quite what it seems. And, of course, darkness aids that because darkness makes reality shapeshift. So, you know, the curtains move or your partner looks like a monster in the dark or, you know, the furniture is going to come and get you or you see phantoms. And there are some quasi-sleep states where you're half-conscious, half-sleeping, where those things can really terrify you. I describe in the book that state of paralysis that you get, which is very typical of REM sleep, where sometimes you can click into consciousness and you know you're awake, or at least you think you're awake, and you, you imagine a mosquito's buzzing in your ear, but your body is so paralyzed you can't slap it away. So there are states of really high anxiety and insomnia that, that aren't very pleasant that I also wanted to write about. Um, just to talk to what you were talking about earlier, a lovely theme about consciousness in the dark. I was very interested in that whole idea of the seer in the dark, the blind seer, the one who sees the third eye. The idea, again, the truest seeing in darkness. And, you know, that there is the ancient Hindu philosophy that talks about kind of um, sleep as the highest state of consciousness, something we should aspire to. Um, and then, of course, there were the ancient Egyptians, the idea of incubation, that they went into the, the temples um, to, to go to sleep in the temples and become literally like lightning rods. Their bodies were conduits for this kind of priestly, you know, divine knowledge to come down through them that the priests would then interpret. Um, so you've got this whole idea of darkness being a portal into insight, whereas in Western philosophy you've got this idea of, you know, illumination equals light equals knowledge. But there's another side to that, too, in darkness. I was also very interested in dreams, but the, there's a very big challenge. How do you write about dreams in an interesting way that hasn't much been written about before? So although, of course, I do talk about psychoanalysis and Freud, it's less, to me, I've highlighted a couple of things that I thought readers might be less familiar with. So I talked about um, Charlotte Barant, who wrote a book called The Third Reich of Dreams, and what Russell said about dreams being a way of processing emotional experience plays very interestingly with what it made me think about, again, about what Barant says in her book, because she was a journalist in Vienna in the 1930s, and she was having these terrible nightmares. She was a Jewish journalist, and she was having these terrible nightmares where she says, hunted, tortured, and scalped. And she had this idea that her countrymen and women might be having wondered, she wondered, would they having the same kind of dreams as her? So she interviewed people and she collected their dreams. And this landscape of shared dreaming, this shared paranoia about what it was like to live in a totalitarian state where you feared for your life, ended up having a kind of map 
there was a map of this, kind of of this, where, where those feelings became internalized and popped out again in dreams. It's an absolutely incredible book and quite a harrowing read. And um, Bruno Bettelheim writes a postscript to this book where he says the Nazis succeeded in, in making people so terrified that he, they, he, they actually made you have the dreams that they wanted you to dream, mm. which were dreams of self-contamination and dreams of fear and dreams of paranoia. And that's what totalitarian states can do to, to you. Um, and I also take an interesting little byway with dreams by talking about... Um, Vladimir Nabokov, who is a very famous um, insomniac and also champion of insomnia, because he said he, he thought he likened insomnia to a sunburst because he loved the way that it kind of made him feel well, he's joggy, buzzy, and jittery. Mm. And he was very creative at night, and he wrote at night, as a lot of insomniacs do. Um, but he had this kind of rather crazy, perhaps, perhaps this was the cognitive impairment talking, <laughs> but he had this rather crazy infatuation with a, with a British maverick called John Donne, who had this idea um, about sleep being, um, or rather s- dreams, being a kind of portal, again, onto the peculiar way in which time works. Because he, but Donne's theory was that time wasn't linear, but that it kind of had little recursive loops, so it kind of made little patterns looped back on itself. And Nabokov was uh, taken with Dunn's ideas, and he tried in 1964 a little experiment on himself, and he kept a dream diary, because he, what he was looking for in his dream diary was precognition, which is this idea that he might have a cog- precognitive dream of a later waking experience. And it's really interesting, because there's a Vladimir Nabokov scholar who's just written a book about this dream diary of Nabokov's, which has actually managed to trace and gives the, gives the delusion the lie. Mm. But one or two of his dreams that he was convinced was precognition, actually the scenarios that he was dreaming were things he'd written about in an earlier play that he'd forgotten. <laughs> oh, no. About, I know, you know, you're yeah. glad Nabokov isn't around to yeah. be given the cold water treatment on that. <laughs> um, but anyway, I mean, I did, I did in the end. So having, having started this book in a state of kind of desperation, feeling that I wanted somehow to put to paper the trauma of my insomniac experience, I kind of came out the other end. And I was, I was kind of interested in the, 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 the kind of the, the wakefulness, the, the embracing wakefulness and the kind of, you know, the, the way in which um, Shahida said, let's, let's get rid of mindfulness. I, in my book, I have a real kind of tirade against mindfulness because I'm talking about mind-wandering as a kind of uh, thing we should maybe be celebrating and insomnia, the mind does a lot of wandering. And I'll shut up because I could go no. on for ages. <laughs> I, I want to ask you... Well, let's give you a round of applause first. Did your, did your sleep get better or have you just... Are you more reconciled to being an insomniac? No, it hasn't got better, really. Although the insomnia comes in jags, so um, it, it, when I'm really bad, it's, it's desperate. It really, it's not pleasant. I wouldn't be laughing and joking here. I find it very hard to function. Um, and, I mean, I was, at my worst, I would get maybe one night's sleep or the equivalent thereof over a span of five days. I mean, it's that bad. Mm. Um, and I don't function very well. Um, but I have embraced it because I have to live with it and because I don't think that there is the magic pill, you know. And I, I, in the book, I also do a CBT course, which I found really unhelpful. But I hope I've dealt with it humorously. Um, 
you know, all us growling zombies in the room, in the CBT room, were kind of quite um, unhappy with being given sleep diets, for example, which make you actually sleep, enforce on you a sleep restriction that collides with the minimal amount of sleep that you get. Right. There is a sense-making theory behind it. I mean, there is a theory that makes sense behind it, which is to say that, um, and Simon said this actually, this idea of you go to bed too early, in fact, you're not really sleepy, but you fall asleep because everything in your environment is conducive to sleep, but your body wakes up uh, earlier, like two in the morning, because um, you've kind of, you're tr- you're, you've deluded it into thinking that it's sleeping. So the sleep diet, the idea about it, I mean, you can probably explain this better than me, Russell, but the idea behind the sleep diet is that if you spend less time in bed, you will get better quality sleep. So it makes sense, but if you're severely chronically insomniac, you can't even do that, so you feel an extra sense of failure. I just wanted to pick up on the waking up in the middle of the night. There's increasing evidence that uh, up until the industrial era, we were biphasic or indeed polyphasic in our sleep, which means that you would have a a sleep episode, uh, then you'd wake up, and then you'd go back to sleep. And what I think might be happening um, in today's society is that sometimes we have a throwback. So we wake up in the middle of the night, you think, oh, my God, that's it, I'm never going to get back to sleep again. Um, Whereas if you relax you leave the sleeping place and you go somewhere else, you don't have a caffeinated drink, you listen to maybe quiet music or a relaxing book, and you begin to get tired again and you return then to the sleeping place. But I think so many of us think, right, I've woken up at 2 o'clock, that's it, I might as well abandon that and start doing my emails. Whereas actually, yeah. um, it could be a, a throwback to, a, to an earlier sleep pattern. Mm. Yes, I like, I like that idea. We should say probably that CBT, of course, works for some people and, lots, and mindfulness, of course, does work for some people too. It seems very subjective, of that. course. <laughs> <laughs> there are other providers, uh, as they say on the BBC. Um, although your, your CBT episode made me remind, remi- reminded me of a friend who went to a sleep school to train herself to sleep, and, she, and I was going through a bad patch with my sleep, and I looked on the website, and one of the user feedback comments said, it was a real eye-opener, which... <laughs> Uh, dissuaded me from going along. But I want to, <laughs> I'm not even joking, but I really want to ask you about, in your book I have a sense of the other person in the room, your husband, actually your dog at certain moments. Yeah, yeah. We should talk about the sleep of animals, um, but your partner, and it occurs to me that we talk about sleep as though it is such a private activity, but there are other people in a home, and there are, there's a community of the sleepless out in this city or other places, yes. right? I'm so glad you mentioned that. I mean, other people... Um, I think when you're awake at night, you become incredibly aware of feeling utterly alone, you know, because you can't wake your partner. You can't kind of wave at the other insomniacs that you know are lying awake in their beds. And you start thinking, God, sleep is this really crazy thing. You start wondering how many people, there must be like dozens, hundreds, thousands of people with their bedside lights on in the middle of the night thinking, I'm so alone, (laughs) you know, when of course you're not. And I have all these mixed feelings about my partner who, because he's a sleeper, yeah. you know, so I don't want to disturb him. I'm also jealous of him, you know. <laughs> and I kind of look at him and I just, you know, <laughs> it's not very fair. Uh, <laughs> Simon's got a guilty I'm bit. laughing because my, my wife often says, I was awake all night. And I think, well, I was awake all night, so how could... <laughs> One of us can't be telling the truth, right? <laughs> But there is something about that sense that, of how insomnia, how insomnia works, how you feel. Yeah. 
um, as, as an insomniac or a poor sleeper versus what your actual patterns of sleep are, and that might not match together a- absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, I was asking Russell earlier about this phenomenon of co-consciousness where people go into sleep clinics because they say they can't sleep, and yeah. then they're hooked up to electrodes and they wake up in the, night, in the morning and they say, I haven't slept all night, it's been terrible, and yeah, sure. the doctors say to them, no, yeah, you've yeah, been yeah. sleeping yeah, yeah. all night. This is what the records yeah. show. And that's a, a really important way in which the apps, if they work properly, could be incredibly informative in saying, well, actually, you've had a, a pretty good night's sleep. The trouble is they, they, can, they can do the opposite, whereas, you know, they say, I've only had three hours of slow-wave sleep. And people have come up to me and said, you know, how can I get more slow-wave sleep? Because my app's telling me I, I'm not getting enough. First of all, it, it can't possibly tell you accurately how much slow-wave sleep. And as we discussed earlier, we don't really know what slow-wave sleep is for anyway. So, uh, yes, they can be misleading. Yeah. I want to just pick up, before we open up to you, I know you're desperate to get your questions in and we'll get to you, but um, just the thing about the, the totalitarian dream control, which was totally unexpected to me hearing you talk about that. Um, but it made me think about maybe maybe sleep isn't innocent and it isn't just ours, that the world conspires against our sleep. I don't know, forces of capitalism, our work stress, our... The social media. I wondered if you had thoughts about the things that conspire against our sleep. Wow, that's a that's a huge question. Um, I mean, I, I I think that our sleep is 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 the way that our habits of sleep are conditioned by the society that we live in. So yes, capitalism has a lot to answer for because it wants people to turn up in the office all together at the same time, nine o'clock. So it doesn't matter what your individual you know, habits are, then we can read a lot about light pollution. Again, you know, that's a constrainer and enforcer of the way in which we sleep. Um, We hear we read a lot about blue screens and people who, you know, blue light, apparently very, you know, bad for sleeping. Is that right? What's well, the science? The science. So, so <laughs> our research showed that there's this other photoreceptor system within the eye which is sensitive to blue light. But the key thing to remember is that the clock is relatively insensitive to light. Mm-hmm. So, light at which you can comfortably read by is probably not going to shift the clock very much. It may change levels of alertness. And the classic study was done a few years ago by in a, a study at Harvard, and they got people to look at ebooks on full intensity for four hours on five consecutive nights and then looked at um, the impact it has on sleep behavior and it delayed sleep by 10 minutes oh, wow. Oh, wow. and so as one of my colleagues said at this meeting it may be yeah maybe statistically well 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 yeah I mean I, but that, that's the, I think the key point yeah. I think it's much more of the content of, mm. of the of the oh. activity rather than the light itself mm. I think on on balance it certainly makes sense to minimize light exposure before you go to bed because the higher the level of light the greater the level of alertness and that will delay sleep onset and one of the great ironies is what's the last thing that most of us do before we go to bed stand in the most brightly lit room looking into an illuminated mirror cleaning our teeth Um, and and, you know I I don't understand why maybe there's a manufacturer out here You you have a morning dose of light which increases alertness and then you turn it to the the dim light, red enriched You'll evening. You have to dose. enter into collaboration with some design <laughs> company. Design Dragons company. Den. Yeah. That Simon, did you have something yeah. to say about <laughs> capitalism keeping us awake? <laughs> well, just it's interesting in terms of uh, the idea of policing sleep because I guess you might well say that through an industrial era, with the with the onset of office hours and all the rest of it, um, sleep was was policed in the sense you have a very clear distinction between the time to sleep and the the time to be awake, which might not have been quite the same in a, in an early historical period. 
we're now living in an era, I think, where those boundaries are, are more and more blurred again, and we're, we're asked to stay up later, to work later. Um, and that may cause problems for the way in which we think about sleep if that thought is affected by a certain kind of philosophical tradition, because um, if you look right back, it's not just that in, in Plato, you know, you're, you're suspicious of a sleep which hasn't been properly policed. That's certainly true. But right through the philosophical canon, um, philosophers had a much easier time thinking about sleep proper, when you're properly asleep, versus things like sleepwalking. Sleepwalking is a huge problem for philosophers mm. from Kant and Hegel onwards. Mm. So it's that blurred area between wakefulness and sleep um, that causes philosophy, which causes thinking some, some trouble. And I think in the, in the 20th century, where you find through Levinas, through Freud, through Bergson, an idea that... Um, sleep and wakefulness aren't just opposed. Actually, they inhabit each other in a rather complicated way, and one looks uncannily more like the other than the other does itself. You're then in, in, a, in, in a realm of um, thinking which re-blurs that boundary. And so, from a philosophical point of view, what's quite interesting about um, um, that complicated idea of sleep is it re-complicates what we might mean by philosophy and philosophical thought. Yeah. But certainly in terms of um, capitalism, etc., <laughs> yeah. there's a complicated relationship, I think, yeah. between thinking through these problems and thinking through what it means to have um, an unpoliced relationship to sleep. And just very briefly, I think it's very interesting how different sectors respond to the, the, the sleep yeah. behaviour issue. The business sector is actually beginning to pay attention to this yeah. quite seriously, and they don't want overly impulsive, less empathetic mm-hmm. you know, people that can't think in, in the financial sector. So they're beginning to prioritise sleep. In medicine, there's enormous resistance because essentially it's difficult enough to manage you know, the doctors at the right time and, 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 and get the, the, the night shift manned. And so there, there's, it's one more thing we have to deal with. And so they are somewhat less responsive to dealing with the, the night shift problem than Gosh, the business isn't, isn't that a paradox? That it, the it's an amazing are, paradox, yeah. 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 Let's blur this boundary. <laughs> Let's get some questions. We've got a roving mic, and if you can wave your hands... Um, there's quite a few, so let's take, I'm going to take three at a time, so we'll squeeze some in. So there are two at the front here, and then one just behind. So let's get these three first, and I'll do my best to get round to you. We've got about half an hour. Hello. Hi. Um, uh, this is a question from Marina, actually. Um, without oversharing, I've had chronic insomnia for nearly 30 years, and I'm really interested when you say that you have come to embrace it, I want to know how you do that. <laughs> embrace might be too strong. Yeah. <laughs> let's say make my peace with it. Because, I mean, um, I do get up in the middle of the night now. There's nothing worse, as I'm sure you know, lying there tossing, trying to get back to sleep. Anxiety, fuel, thoughts, thinking. It's, it's so oppressive. Um, and, you know... I think if you get up, at least you're able to dictate the shape of the experience that you have rather than being victim to your racing mind. So, you know, Shahida mentioned the dog. I mean, I go sit with the dog, and I kind of find it very comforting to kind of get into animal rhythms, stroke the dog, breathe at the same time as the dog. And he falls asleep on my lap, of course, because <laughs> he's sort of dreamy and being stroked at night, and he's out, you know, snoring. And I actually find that really relaxing. Um, and so I do, I sort of, I think about all those nocturnal creatures running around outside as well and sort of feel this is another kind of, it's just another kind of time. 
Um, so, so, Marie, just for clarity, you, yeah. you're not curling up in, in the dog basket. Uh, I mean, no. Is, 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 <laughs> no, I bring him onto the I sofa. See. Okay, just yes. as well. Yeah. No, he's a very pampered dog, <laughs> really. Um, um, and, um, or I read. Sometimes I write. If I'm feeling very alert, I write. And strangely, I don't know if you find this, but if I sometimes scroll through my Twitter feed at night in the dark, so there's this bright blue screen in front of me, I almost like hypnotise myself back to sleep sometimes. It's bizarre. I know it sounds it's contrary to the received wisdom, which says shine the blue light and you're wide awake. But if I read enough, if I scroll through enough kind of dissociated people's... You know, it's dissociated, the, the Twitter feed, isn't it? Because it's other people's thoughts coming into your screen. That could be quite sleep-inducing. So that's really interesting because I'm a writer... And people say, oh, you must get so much writing done. But most of the time, I just want to like hit my head against the bedroom wall at night. I don't actually feel like writing. Mm. So that's a really mm. good idea. And I just have to say that I did the CBT too, and I hated everything you as well. <laughs> <laughs> the Let's get those next two questions together. So yours and then the gentleman behind. Uh, thank you for your comments about the CBT thing. Um, it, somebody's trying to get me to go to a sleep clinic to... No. No. It'll be a real eye yes. opener. You should go. And um, but I have always need. I always say that the only thing I ever had in common with Margaret Thatcher was that we both needed very little sleep, because even as a little kid, they I was the youngest. They tuck me into bed early, and I wasn't tired. And so I started making up stories with my dolls while I could hear the rest of the family and hear them go to bed. And I also do some writing, but. Um, I had, a, I had a, a, a stroke that affected the thalamus about three and a half years ago, and since that time have averaged two hours of sleep per 24. Wow. And I, I don't, and I'm not laying there. I never lay there in the night so all worried about it. I just, I'm just not, I'm perfectly alert. I'm just not tired, but my body seems to be caving in. But it, it's, it's just interesting, the rest of the world's reaction and the medical community's response which is pretty much nil. Let's, we'll, we'll, we'll try and get something from Russell, but let's squeeze the question in behind you as well. Thank you for that. My name is Robert, and I'm a student here at LSE. So thank you very much for your talks and for your conversation. Very fascinating. Uh, my question is about lucid dreaming. So it's the ability to control your dreams, which sometimes it's easy to do in early in the mornings. So you wake up, you fall asleep again, you really want to go back to your sleep, to your dream, and you manage to. So... My question is about, is there any philosophy, science, or personal experiences behind it? Thank you. Okay. So there was a question about uh, two hours sleep a night and managing to function it, and then one about lucid dreaming and controlling our dreams. Any thoughts? Russell, I think the two uh, hours a night was to you. Yeah. Um, so so is it, do you go back to sleep at all, or are you getting in total only two hours, or is it very fragmented? It's like 15 minutes. I mean, if I fall asleep yeah. doing something, then I'll because I'm not just going to lay there in a dark room, so the television's on, because I've lost some of my vision, so reading is more difficult. And um, the, the same program's on in America. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult to, to, to know exactly what's going on, but in general, I mean, if... Yeah, um, it's so, so part of the circuitry of this sort of flip-flop it has, it looks as though it's, it's been damaged. I mean, it was what was interesting, the comment that you said about the, the medics not really being aware of this uh, and taking it into account. It is quite fascinating. In a five-year training, 
uh, a medic will perhaps have one lecture on sleep. Um, And yet, as a GP, for example, it's been estimated that 30% of the problems a GP encounters will be either directly or indirectly related to sleep. So there there is a profound failure to educate our our medics, which is what we're doing something about. We've actually got a a fully online sleep medicine program uh, that you can take, um, and, and it's for healthcare professionals. But the other really interesting, I think, area is the way that sleep disruption is ignored in mental illness. Um, and what's fascinating about that is that we've talked, and Craplin, the father of psychiatry, was talking about sleep problems in mental illness back in the 1880s. Um, and no, no, but, but it's interesting, it's, it's another illustration of how, how it's essentially ignored. Um, and that um, uh, essentially what we're discovering is that there are, are overlapping circuits within the brain. No, 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 no. I'm just, I'm just illustrating the fact that, <laughs> that, that, that some, we're beginning to understand the circuitry of what various bits of the brain are doing. And in, in, in the context of your, your thalamic lesion, I don't know where it is. And, and, and uh, without m- more discussion, I don't know how that might influence your sleep weight structure. Um, but in a sense, you're, you've got what you've got. Um, and what you need to do is manage it as best you can. And I think that's actually what we all have to do. We have to prioritize sleep as much as we possibly can. There are things that we can do behaviorally to uh, change our sleep patterns. And so whilst CBT may not work for all, there's a huge amount of evidence to suggest that it can. A colleague of mine in um, the Department of Psychiatry, Dan Freeman, has got some fantastic data showing that the use of CBT Um, It's, in fact, an online version of CBT, has been able to reduce hallucinatory experiences and delusional experiences in people with mental illness. So there is a very important relationship. CBT can work. You often have to persevere with it. What about the lucid dreaming question? Simon, have you got something? I mean, I don't know too much about the science of lucid dreaming, and I defer to others. But I guess the obvious question is, um, precisely when you think you're in control of the dream, is it in control of... You. So Freud gives a very good example of the, dr- the dream of, of, of finding a coin on the floor and the dream of reaching down and picking up the coin, which gives you the impression while dreaming, obviously, of good fortune, uh, happy benefit, a uh, kind of aboveness, a sense of control. But Freud says as you reach down and pick up the coin, the dream's got you. Oh, yeah. And he also talks about, in, in, a, um, in the interpretation of dreams, he talks about the relationship between what he calls daytime residues, the things that you've experienced during the day, which might enter into your, your dream life, and its relationship to the unconscious. Because Freud wants to say, actually, the meaning of dreams doesn't reside in what you pick up during the day. And he uses an interesting language, which is that the daytime residues are the entrepreneur, but the capital comes from the unconscious. In other words, the capital, the unconscious, really does the work. It provides the resources for the entrepreneur to do its stuff. And I think that, comes to, that points to a similar kind of idea, really, in Freud, um, that where you think, actually, the daytime can take control of the night. Yeah. Uh, uh, it may well be working the other way around. I mean, that's obviously not a scientific answer to the question well, of lucid dreaming, but I guess it's, it's, it's a problem for science do, all the way down the line. Do, sci- um, do scientists ever think about the content of dreams, or are they only ever interested in dreams um, as a function? Okay, so, so as a scientist, and I 
guess this would be the, the, the collective view, is that dreams are regarded as an artifact of the brain trying to make sense of our world. The analogy that, that we've used, for example, is that there's a, a partially formed jigsaw puzzle within the brain that, that it represents our collective memories and experiences. During the day, more bits of the jigsaw puzzle come flooding in. Sometime, a bit of new information will fit into a slot and you've come up with that solution to a complex problem. Other times you've got the brain trying to force this bit of information into, into the framework and it doesn't fit. And so there are these bizarre associations and things. So I would argue that dreaming is an artifact of the brain trying to make sense of its world. Um, it has no predictive value, uh, but certainly one's emotional state can very much influence where that piece of the jigsaw puzzle would be tried to be slotted in. And I think the point that you were making about the Nazis essentially General, you know, giving you the dreams that they want is really fascinating yeah. by, by essentially making the environment so hostile that essentially all those bits of information are being forced into that bit of your, of your, your partly formed puzzle. I mean, I'm sure we all, you know, you, hmm. you don't have to, to ask many people in a room to discover that we all have anxiety dreams, for example, the missing planes, missing trains. Yeah. You know, those are the dreams of capitalism and post-capitalism. So, yeah. again, the society that we live in really gives us the dreams that we, we seem to share. Yeah. Let's, let's get another host of questions in. One at the very front, and um, let's get two at the end there. Sorry, and then I'll come up to you. I've, I know you're up there, too. Um, so I was just coming back to the idea that, you know, Aristotle was saying it's so important to humans to sleep it's you know it's the origin of consciousness and whatnot but you know works as early as the Iliad so Homer have been trying to work out what is fundamental to humans but still even today we still don't have an answer for that and so leading on from what is important to humans what is fundamentally making us human to linking that up to sleep how come I was just wondering what your thoughts were on how Sleep varies so much, even taking one person's lifetime from childhood upwards or comparing people of the same age group to, you know, I'm 17, comparing me to other 17-year-olds or comparing me to my 10-year-old self, how sleep can vary so much but still be part of an intrinsic humanness. Great, and that, a good question. And then the, the two there, thank you. Um, so this is probably a question more towards uh, Russell um, about about um, short sleepers. So sleepers who can get less than two hours or less than two hours of sleep a night, who make up about one percent of the population. Um, so I know it's a sleep disorder that is obviously in one percent of the population. But is it possible for people without it to acquire it just by having a really bad sleeping pattern, essentially? That, that's my question. Okay. Thank you. Very interesting uh, contributions from all the speakers. As I understand it, one of the great problems of sleep is our inability to investigate it, despite even the most contemporary methods of imaging technology like MRI scans and PET scans and molecular biology. None of them really seem to give us too much of a handle on understanding what's going on inside. And I just wondered if... Um, you had any thoughts of any new innovative uh, 
things that are coming up on the horizon that will enable us to have some sort of methodological breakthrough to give us an insight into just what's going on mm. and how I, it works. I think that's a good question to ask all of you, actually, not just scientists. The breakthroughs, what are the breakthroughs in trying to understand sleep? So the question was um, one about how can we make sense of sleep when it varies so much? And I think, Russell, you've got things to say on that as well as Simon. The second one was about can sleep get worse, it sounds to me? Could it become... And it, can it become pathological because it become ill? And then um, how do we make sense of sleep in innovative ways? Are there innovative ways of making sense of it? Any takers? <laughs> Just in relation to the, the first question, my point was really that for, for good reasons, as I've tried to outline, philosophy in its first gesture tries to exclude sleep as a non-philosophical problem or question and not something that one could think about philosophically since philosophical thought is waking thought. But I think it's, it's within the classical moves of philosophy that if philosophy can't exclude something entirely from its own um, remit, what it will do is try and incorporate that thing and in fact take it to heart. So very quickly, you know, sleep then becomes <laughs> not something to be excluded from the philosophical uh, the rigours of philosophical discourse, but actually something that it, it placed dead centre as a gesture of incorporation or even, in fact, control. So you can see the whole history of a philosophical discourse of sleep being an attempt to control sleep one way or the other. Now, I wouldn't want to make a, a, an undue kind of analogy between philosophy and Nazism, but it's very interesting, the question of what it might mean to try and control Sleep, And if I'm right when I talk, or if Freud's right when he talks about the dream controlling you at the very moment you think you're in control of the dream, then I guess there's a question there about this idea that um, Nazism as a form of totalitarianism was so powerful that it could control dreams. I don't doubt that for a moment. But what do we then do with the Freudian idea that just when you think you're in control of the dream, it's in control of you? What does that mean about, in fact, and it's a very serious question, the fortunes of Nazism within that mm, paradigm, yeah, you yourself. Absolutely. That would, that would be a response. Mm, yeah. I, I, I know, Russell, you, I think one of the things that interests you most about sleep is precisely that question, that it varies so enormously. And I think it's important to make that general point. You know, there are sort of books being published that say you must get eight hours. Well, that's nonsense. Um, essentially, you need to define the sleep that you need as an individual. And if you need an alarm clock to wake you up in the morning, if it takes you a long time to wake up, if you're seeking out stimulants during the day, if you're massively oversleeping at the, on free days or at the weekend or when you go on holiday, all of these are signs that you need more sleep um, and that you need to prioritize. And, and take some ownership of one's sleep because changing one's behavior will change one's sleep. Now, to the specific question of two hours, that is on the sort of the, 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 the end of the spectrum, which is probably not enough. Um, but it might be okay for you, and that's where we don't have enough studies. It may well be that you are functioning okay, that your reaction times are okay, your cognition, your mood, your ability to interact are all preserved, and it may well be that there are these individuals at the extreme that can function perfectly well. Um, so I think really one has to assess one's own sleep needs, prioritize it, but really not worry about it if you're functioning perfectly well. And, and I think that that's really, it's, it's taking ownership of one's sleep and prioritising. And the last question was about innovations, but I think it would oh, yeah. go to all of you, not just innovations in science, but innovations, things that have help, helped you make sense of sleep. 
well, if I, I sort of kick off, I mean, what we're doing within the team in Oxford, uh, there are some extraordinarily exciting innovations. So certain structures within the brain have been identified as perhaps being, being involved in sleep. And they go way back to the end of the First World War when, when there were the, um, essentially the flu virus was damaging bits of the brain and it was noted that various aspects of sleep were disrupted. So we've sort of known that bits of the brain do various bits, but we, we, beyond that we have, have had very little idea. Now with sort of optogenetic techniques whereby you can specifically turn on a subset of cells within the brain in animal models, you can get a very exquisite sense of what that structure is doing and how it's responding when it's being turned on and how other associated brain regions. You can also use rather complicated sets of electrodes which can record multiple areas of, of, of brain activity simultaneously. And so, so there genuinely are innovations. I mean, so for example, I tended, well I portrayed sleep as being this sort of flip-flop on or off. Vlad Vyazovsky, who is one of my colleagues in Oxford, has got some amazing data showing that actually some bits of the brain fall asleep during the wake state. So, so you can be you know, going along and bits of the brain are, are, are falling into deep sleep. And so it's not a flip-flop. And, and it may be that the sort of variants that we see are also associated with the brain doing different bits of sleep in, appar in apparently the conscious state. Which, so, so yeah, there's, there's lots of exciting stuff going on. Yeah. Marina and Simon, are there, are there innovative things that have helped you make sense of... Well, You'll I mean, see. I think I was thinking, I'm trying to change my attitude towards sleep. So rather than thinking I'm chasing this thing that doesn't love me back, mm. I, I, you know, I'm always the supplicant. I've got these plaintive, you know, demands um, that I think I'll rather just turn my back on sleep and yeah. I'll treat it as a gift. So let sleep find me. That's been the change in, in you know. So it's not just accepting insomnia, it's also saying... All right, sleep. You know, maybe you're not as fantastic as I thought you were. <laughs> yeah. Come and get me. <laughs> Playing hard to get. I like it. Simon? Well, I was just struck by what Russell was saying, this idea that, you know, you, you can be part of sleep while wide awake and vice versa. And looking at some of the philosophy I'm most interested in in the post-war period, particularly from a European tradition, I mean, th those types of philosophy are very heavily criticised, certainly by a particular strain of philosophy we might call analytic philosophy, and I'm, I'm going too quickly here, which says, well, this isn't, you know, that the, the, the hard and sharp concepts aren't there, that the, the, the rational rigour isn't there. If everything I'm saying about um, uh, philosophy's relationship to sleep and dreaming has any traction, it means that... To understand sleep differently may involve philosophizing differently. Mm -hmm. And if we're understanding sleep and science gives us the resources to think about that as not simply a matter of a clear uh, differentiation between what it means to be awake and what it means to be asleep, then what that might mean for a, a, a philosophical text is um, we can't draw, draw a hard and sharp distinction between his philosophy proper and his poetry mm -hmm. or his music or his something else. So, I mean... I think the way that um, certain philosophical texts in the late 20th, early 20th, 21st century innovate uh, with the manner in which they're written precisely corresponds, I think, to this complicated question of...
that science gives us to think, actually, of what sleep might be. But I think you've raised a really important point, because whether it's the sciences, the arts, philosophy, particularly philosophy, these are all endeavours whereby we're trying to make sense of our world. We're using very different tools and rather different approaches, but that's fundamentally what we're trying to do. And so the more that scientists, philosophers and artists interact and talk and come up with a consensus set of ideas, I think the better. And, and And the concept of the two cultures, you know, we're, all, we're also heavily implicated, sorry, we're also heav- heavily implicated in our object of study. Because if yeah. it's right what we're yeah. saying, then all of us at the moment, we're not just wide awake having this fascinating intellectual discussion, we're also part of sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Well, so much of, yes, of, of our ability to function now is dependent upon the quality of sleep we had last night. Yes. Let's wake up the top row. Okay, so um, there's a, a question. Let's get the two there and then one at the front if we can. I'll try to come to you. I really will. Um, Hi. So um, there was a magic pill mentioned before. (laughs) Um, So I have a question about um, certain medicine. I'm not sure how uh, many of you are aware, but I know there's medicine called uh, modafinil, I believe, uh, which basically reduces your need uh, for sleep by 30% without apparently any negative consequences to your health. Uh, and apparently also it's widely used in certain professions. So what, have, what are your thoughts on this? And, you know, what are your thoughts on making such, such a medicine widely available uh, to people and benefits uh, and disadvantages um, yep. of this? Question there? Thank you. So my question is, um, I was wondering if you could uh, briefly explain the potential correlation between heavy mobile phone usage and quality or length of sleep, especially within the younger population. Great. And then along here, there was... Oh, it's coming up that way. It's coming behind you. There we go. So this one is for philosophers. For philosophers who believe that while we are sleeping, we're actually more awake than than when we are actually awake. For these kind of philosophers, do they think that we are morally responsible for the st- stuff we do, say, while we are sleepwalking. Mm. Like, take a very extreme case. If someone kills a, a person while sleepwalking, do these philosophers would believe that this person is morally responsible for killing that person? Okay. Was that a confession or was that a question? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's well, take yeah, okay. it. <laughs> <fine>. Let's you take <laughs> Magic <laughs> pills, <laughs> mobile phones, and moral responsibility. Who wants to go? So do the pills. Yeah, do the pills. I want to know about this. Um, so the drug you refer to is modafinil or provigil. It was developed originally by a French company to deal with narcolepsy. So narcolepsy is this condition whereby one uncontrollably falls asleep. And it works and it has changed the lives of, of narcoleptics. But it has been used, for example, to prevent night shift workers falling asleep. And, uh, for example, I think it was used in the, one of the Gulf Wars uh, to keep um, the soldiers, uh, the French soldiers, in, in, I think it was Gulf War II. Leon first? Where it was. Wow. Um, and so, so I, and, and certainly it's better than the amphetamines that were used by the forces. So I think judicious use of some of these drugs can be very useful. Where I begin to worry is that you become dependent upon them. And so, for example, you've got a drug that um, allows you to stay awake. And certainly for short-term use under certain extenuating circumstances, it kind of makes sense. But to become dependent upon it, I mean, the one thing we know about the brain is it's immensely plastic. And we know with drugs, any sort 
sort of drug, you'll need more and more to get the same effect. And so my concern, even though it's not supposed to be a drug that you become dependent upon, we don't really have the data. We don't even know what the mechanism of modafinil is. Um, it's not, it's, we probably do, but it's not, it's not out there in, in, in the public domain. Um, and so it, you know, it raises the whole area. Um, so, so alcohol is used as a sedative for many, um, for many night shift workers, for example. They will, will sedate themselves with alcohol. But what we know about alcohol is that, again, it can have a short-term sedative effect, but it can actually disrupt some of the, the, the important um, memory consolidation tasks that are going on. And if you become dependent upon alcohol, you can massively disrupt sleep. So, again, it's the occasional you know, use just to stabilize is probably fine. It's the long term why I begin to worry. And I should say, I, and I fess my hand up, I mean, we're working on drugs that mimic the effects of light on the clock. So, for example, we're working with one of the charities, the Blind Veterans. These are poor individuals who've lost their eyes. And so the clock keeps on ticking, but it can't be synchronized to the external world. And so, you know, you have people waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning. These are incredibly um, capable individuals. So they start mowing the lawn at 3, at 3 a.m., driving the family and the neighbors completely crazy. And so what we're trying to do, on the basis of knowledge of how the light interacts with the clock, is to fool the brain into its, it, the fact that it's seen light. So... I think it's horses for courses. Yes, um, useful under certain circumstances, but I would be very uneasy for sustained use of, for example, modafinil for maintaining vigilance in any sector other than narcoleptics. Could I respond to that very intriguing question about sleepwalking mm. and moral responsibility? Because mm. I think, and I know I'm certainly guilty of it in my book, but I, and I think we are culturally, we use the term sleepwalking in quite a loose morally reprehensible way. So somebody who slumbers through their life or who sleepwalks is someone who isn't taking moral responsibility for their actions or not refusing to see things that other people see. So it's at the level of conscience that we talk about a sleepwalker. But then if you take it literally and in the context you've mentioned of criminality, criminality is defined by intentionality. And you made me think, well, there's this very famous case of, in America of a man who was a known sleepwalker um, who drove miles and miles to his mother-in-law's house, killed her, drove home, and went back to bed and was um, understood and interpreted, I mean, obviously the case went to court, as having been asleep for all that time. He had no conscious recollection of doing any of it. So I suppose the question, it's a bit like the moral laxity around the idea of looseness around the idea we metaphorically think of sleepwalking. If you look at it to the literal extreme, can you have something like an unconscious intention? And can sleep be the medium through which you enact on, act out on that unconscious intention? I have no answer for your question, but it seemed to me really intriguing because it has to do with the way in which we blur literal and metaphoric understandings of sleepwalking and I'd argue that we do that in every dimension in which we talk about sleep actually. And there's, there's two sorts of, of sleepwalking. There's REM behavioural disorder, which is where you are not paralysed while you're having these, these dream states. And, and so that's the, you know, that perhaps part of the argument for why you are paralysed during REM sleep is that you don't 
you know, act, act out. So you your, don't yes, act out those which is really forms. fascinating. Yeah, um, um, yeah. but of course, o- other forms of sleepwalking are, are the sort of the slow way sleepwalking, where you, you're probably not likely to indulge in some of those violent acts. Uh, so, yeah, really fascinating. What, do, what does our philosopher say about yes. moral responsibility? <laughs> but it does throw up all sorts of legal and ethical questions because, you know, outside of the, you know, that very classical idea of, of sleepwalking, we've already heard of examples of people who fall asleep at the wheel and, and presumably are subject to criminal conviction. Yes. But then there's the question of, well, well, what are we convicting there? Are we convicting the act as it happens, or are we convicting the intention before the act to <laughs> do something, whether it's work late or drink or whatever it might be, um, that, that gives us that incident in the first place? So it's almost a byproduct of, of an investment in a certain idea of consciousness and intentionality that gives you these sort of remainders or supplements that we might want to call sleepwalking or something else. Um, uh, uh, and we have a hard time knowing what to do with that, and particularly if you're pushing the conversation mm-hmm. towards an idea that one, one is always part asleep when one is a, awake, then that throws up some very difficult mm-hmm. ethical and legal questions. And part legal awake questions. when one is asleep. Yeah, that throws up some... I mean, classic example, there's, there was a junior doctor who um, fell asleep at the wheel after the night shift work, ploughed into an athlete, um, made him a quadriplegic. The family sued the junior doctor, and the junior doctor then sued the hospital right. because she said, you know, it's your failure of duty of care that has made me do this. And so it gets incredible. I mean, there's going to be a fantastic um, opportunity for lawyers, I think, in the near future. Because, um, I mean, you know, uh, essentially, unless I think a company has shown sufficient duty of care to deal with these issues, I, th- I think there's going to be real problems. Don't you? Class My advice suits. is don't do it. <laughs> okay. Let's squeeze one question in so lady in the spots at the top one, like, you can get one last one in you might have to answer quite quickly hi my question is for Simon um, from a philosophical point of view what do you think the uh, problems are that you've just quoted male philosophers and the basis of my question for that would be uh, Freud is quite problematic you know mm. he talks about penis envy and why would you want a shotgun if you could have an automatic <laughs> and um, also, there's a study by um, anthropologists um, that I read in a book by Natalie Anger, who's a New York Times mm. biology writer. Um, it's called Women Intimate Geography. And um, she quoted um, this study that said that um, over a 24-hour period, this tribe was only had one hour, 37 minutes, where someone was not awake. So that would disrepute the hunter um, uh, philosophy that would say that hunters slept so that in the woods or something like that. So it was a protection mechanism. So we've now been able to master our environment where we don't need sleep, we don't need people to be awake at certain times. So you have teenagers going to bed later and waking up later. They go to school later in Germany. Um, and the other thing is then in that it's interesting to me to see that Marina, you were quoting um, the uh, the journalist in the 1930s that she was able to see that the emotional processing that was going on, she was able to map that before the science was able to relate to it. So I'm just wondering if we had more women philosophers, like do you, what do you think um, that would mean for your studies? I certainly agree that the way in which I presented the, the philosophical canon, although I haven't done this explicitly, um, draws out the fact that it's, it's highly gendered. And so what you're seeing there in, in, a, in a philosophical uh, uh, a response to sleep is on the one hand an attempt to dismiss or sideline an issue and and in some texts it's to feminize it too by the way um, in order that philosophy attains actually a very masculine kind of uh, control or sovereignty or power over the topic Um, and through 
quite gendered notions of consciousness or rationality. Um, and if it can't exclude, it tries to incorporate so as to control. Um, so I think, uh, you know, it, it, it's a very interesting question, and, and I guess we don't have time now to, to look at other kinds of texts, but certainly I think um, uh, that relation in the philosophical tradition to sleep is a highly gendered one. I do know that Simone de Beauvoir used to go to sleep in her ski wear just to save on heating bills. So, yeah, we should all follow in Simone's wake. Um, well, uh, I'm hoping that you're, we've exhausted you with these brilliant questions, that you'll have a really good night's sleep or else you'll be up pacing trying to answer these questions. Would you please join me in thanking our marvellous speakers, Marina Benjamin. Thank you.